We're in verse 37. Unlike those other churches. <laughs> oh, Melody. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 is our text. We're in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, really. Not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the Plain. He's talking to his disciples in a plains area, having chosen the twelve. He addresses them and the rest of the disciples. And uh, time did not permit us to have the whole sermon last week, so we're in what to us is part two, but it's a continuation of, of the same thoughts. We put in at verse 37, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter if you just want to follow along. Judge not, you shall not be judged. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood rose, the steam beat or the, excuse me, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we'd pause again for prayer, really just to acknowledge, Lord, that um, we need your presence here to uh, unfold these thoughts to us. We always enjoy your word, Lord, to hear it read, to understand it, especially the words in red, Lord, because you're speaking to us directly, and we thank you for that. And uh, Lord, as you're speaking to disciples here in this sermon, I pray that we would understand that we are in that category, that you're speaking to us just as clearly and plainly as you did centuries ago to these first 12 and the other followers that you had at the time. And I pray that we would put in, Lord, uh, at that place and, and hear what you have to say to us and uh, examine ourselves as you're going to encourage us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Poor, hungry, weeping, hated, excluded, reviled, cursed, spitefully used, struck on the cheek, confiscated, Possessions. Those are some of the things that Jesus 
said in the first half of this sermon, these are Jesus' talking points for disciples, short summary statements to discuss what they could expect in the weeks and months and years and now centuries to come. Jesus was not just talking to the twelve. He was talking to them plus the rest of His disciples. He was talking to the rest of His disciples throughout history, and that includes you and I. And so, welcome to the world of discipleship. You can expect many negative encounters as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We saw that last week if you were here. You can also experience much positive encouragement, and that is the theme of this second part of Jesus' sermon. The negative encounters of verses 20 through 36 mostly describe the circumstances you can expect as a Christian in a world that is hostile to the love of God for lost mankind. The positive encouragement is in verses 37 through 49. They describe how you rise above your circumstances. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you're encouraged because you are becoming like Jesus. And number two, you're encouraged because you are building for Jesus. And so first of all, in verses 37 through 45, you're encouraged because you are becoming like Jesus. Let's remember our context again. The Jews were expecting their Messiah to come and establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus had been performing miracles that only the Messiah could perform. He had just chosen 12 apostles. The number 12, very significant. There were 12 tribes among the Jews. Choosing 12 apostles made a strong statement that Jesus was going to set up His kingdom with the help of these men. As you read on in the Gospels and later in the book of Acts, you see that His disciples definitely expected the kingdom and to be ruling on thrones in the kingdom. They were ready to take their cabinet positions. But there was a catch. Jesus knew He'd be rejected by the Jews. He knew He'd be crucified. He knew He'd be resurrected and ascend into heaven. He knew the kingdom of Uh, The kingdom of heaven on earth would be delayed until His second coming. He was preparing His disciples for the enmity they would and will encounter while we wait for His return in a hostile world. Not always, not everywhere, but the history of Christianity and the plight of many Christians today is suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel. You are encouraged in these verses, to rise above those negative encounters, those adverse circumstances. You'll learn that your circumstances are working for you to make you like Jesus. They're working for you to make you like Jesus in at least two ways. They give you the opportunity to see the example of Jesus, and they give you the opportunity to examine yourself. First of all, in verses 37 through 40, we'll see the example of Jesus. Verse 37, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Judge not may be the most popular words in all the Bible. Even the unsaved have them memorized. You ever talk to somebody and start pointing something out about their life and they say, don't judge me, you're judging me. And Jesus said, judge not. And so people say that to turn the tables on you. They may be sinning, 
but you are somehow worse for judging them. Jesus cannot mean that you never pass moral judgments. First of all, in just a few verses, He's going to describe judging based on the fruit that you bring forth. And second of all, the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that the church on earth has both the authority to make moral judgments and the responsibility to act upon them by disciplining its members if necessary. And so what did Jesus mean in these verses? What He meant is made clear, I believe, if you go on and read verses 39 and 40. So let's do that. He spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Now, one thing I've discovered in just studying Scripture, it doesn't always work, but it works a lot, is to do what we're going to do now. And you kind of look at this backwards from verse 40 being the conclusion, verse 39 being an illustration, and then verses 37 and 38 will come into focus. And so if you start with verse 40, what Jesus is saying is that God's plan is for you to become more and more like the Lord as you follow Him and no one or nothing else. He says, if you are a disciple, and remember He was talking to disciples, and if you're a Christian, He's talking to you. He says, if you're a disciple, you are being perfectly trained to be like your teacher. And so that's what's happening in your life as a Christian. The Lord is perfectly training you. He's completing your training through your circumstances, through all the events of your life, through the teaching of God's Word, through everything that's happening to you. He is trying to complete your training so that you will be like your teacher, like Jesus Christ. And therefore, you want to be careful, verse 39, along the way to keep your eyes on Jesus. If you begin to follow any other person or some other principle or a philosophy of man, then you are going to be like a blind person being led by another blind person, and you're going to end up taking a fall. Now you can understand a little bit better, I think, verses 37 and 38. Jesus, your example the person you're becoming more like, he didn't judge and he didn't condemn. Instead, he forgave and he gave of himself. He is your example of how to act and to react when you are being persecuted for his sake. Now, in his first coming, Jesus did not judge and he did not condemn. I know that's true because I read these words in the Gospel of John, John 3, 17 and 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And so the principle here is that Jesus did not come the first time to judge and condemn. He came because mankind was already condemned and headed for judgment so that they might be saved. And then you see this principle in action in one of the most famous stories in the New Testament, the woman who was caught in adultery. Most of you remember that story. The religious leaders caught a woman in the act of adultery, and they drug her before Jesus Christ, threw her on the ground before Him, having no respect for her as a person, shamelessly. 
and they said, hey, Jesus, the law says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? And you know the story. Jesus bent down and he began to write in the dirt. Uh, Probably a reference, you can read it later, to Jeremiah chapter 17, where it speaks of the Lord writing in the dust, and there's a connection there, but we don't have time to go into it. But at any rate, he's writing in the dust. We don't really know what he was writing, but we speculate that he was writing some of the sins of the people that were there because Jesus invited anyone in the crowd who was without sin to hurl the first stone. And then we read this in John 8, 10. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. No judgment, no condemnation, only forgiveness that was based on the giving of himself to be the sacrifice for that woman's sin and for the sins of the world. And so Jesus, this is the nature of Jesus in His first coming. And this is the nature that we are to example. Not judgmental, not condemning, but rather offering forgiveness because of the gift of Jesus Christ, a forgiving, giving people. Jesus was prepping His disciples for life between His two comings. They were and we are in the world as witnesses. Now, witnesses, certainly they, they give, um, uh, you know, a verbal testimony and, and, and teaching and those kinds of things, but we're also to be witnesses in the sense that we are examples of what Jesus is like. The unsaved are already condemned and will be judged unless they receive the Lord. We don't need, therefore, to have a judgmental, condemning spirit towards them. Instead, we should be both forgiving and giving, just as Jesus was when He was on the earth. Now, whether it's accurate or not, right or wrong, I'm I'm certain it is in some cases, but the church throughout the years and centuries oftentimes has a reputation for being judgmental and condemning. People don't feel welcome in a church. Now, there's a lot of reasons why people wouldn't feel welcome in a church, and some of them are just phony. But oftentimes, people don't feel welcome because they're not welcome, because people can have a holier-than-thou attitude that that we have risen above that, and, and we do have a judgmental and condemning attitude. We need to look at the unbelievers the way Jesus did and realize they are condemned already, and judgment is coming upon them. And we want to be able to reach them with the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they can have their sins forgiven. We want to give them that opportunity. Now, Jesus followed this up with an illustration. In the marketplace, when you bought grain, it was carefully measured out. A generous merchant would, once the measure was full, press it down, shake it, and fill it some more, and then he'd eventually put the lid on it with the grain running over to maximize the measure. Those of you who cook, uh, or let's use coffee, why not? (laughs) Over in the coffee shop, we've got that bun commercial coffee maker, and it calls for one cup of coffee for a 12-pot, you know, a 12-cup pot of coffee. And so you fill that up with Pete's Kenya, and uh, you're ready to go. But you could take that 
and you could tamp it down the way that they do espresso, and that cup would shrink down, and you would put more in and press it down and put more until it was overflowing, and then if you could put a lid on it, that's the idea. So how much really is a cup? Is it a cup before it's tamped down, or is it a cup after it's tamped down? This is why I can never cook. I I don't really understand these things, you know? But anyway, that's another aside. Uh, And so that's the idea. If you're in the marketplace and you order a cup, the guy's going to scoop it and there's your cup. But a generous merchant is going to scoop it, tamp it, scoop it some more until you've really got more than you purchased. Now, Jesus, I believe, is comparing himself to the generous merchant in the marketplace. He was and he is ready to give you all the spiritual merchandise you need to fill you in order to reach lost men and women with the gospel. But there's no need for him to do it if you're not going to be forgiving and giving towards them because there's nothing really going out of you. And so that's what these words are about. Now, with the example of Jesus in focus, you're next encouraged to examine yourself according to that example, verses 41 through 45. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Now, this illustration was meant to be humorous. I don't know what impression that we have of Jesus from watching all the weird movies that have been made about him and and how people try to portray divinity and reverence by making him just weird looking, but this is funny. And his disciples and apostles, they would have cracked up. This is like a Marx Brothers or a Three Stooges skit. I was trying to think of some more contemporary slapstick comedians, but I didn't want to the only people I could come up with are people that I'd have to say that I've never seen. But anyway, uh, but th- this really is. I mean, this, Jesus is saying, now, hey, this is, listen, guys, it's as if, and, and imagine this skit in your mind if we did it here on a Sunday morning. You know, oh, man, I've got, it's got something in my eye. I did have some sawdust in my eye yesterday because I was doing a little project. And, and could you imagine somebody coming in with this huge beam, you know, maybe 10 feet out of his eye, you know? Here, let me help you, knocking down all the microphones. And he goes, oh, let me look, and hitting you in the head. Well, get up so I can help you. And, and it's just, it's hilarious. Because, and you're thinking, well, yeah, how can that guy help me? That guy's making it worse, and he doesn't even see he's got a log coming out of his eye. It's really humorous. Now, there's a wealth of teaching here in terms of the value of self-examination. What I want to focus on is this one important point. We've just seen that the disciples are encouraged to become more like Jesus, but we instead have a tendency to compare ourselves to other believers rather than measure ourselves by Jesus. Let me give you an example. When my kids were little and I coached T-ball, I was like A-Rod compared to them. I could outrun, out-hit, and out-throw every six-year-old on my team. (laughs) I was like a baseball god. I mean, it was, you know, you want to play pepper? Come on, let's go. (laughs) But in the back of my mind was the memory that I never went from Little League, where I was an all-star, to Pony League, 
because I couldn't catch or hit a curveball. I, I couldn't figure it out. I knew where it was going to go. I was a catcher. I was an all-star catcher in Little League. I knew where the ball was going to go, but I could never figure out how to get to it. It, it just, my mind, hand-eye coordination wouldn't work with the idea that it was going to drop. And I couldn't hit one either, and so I decided to go into the ministry. <laughs> right then I had the calling. But anyway... Jesus is the spiritual measure you are to look at, not your brothers and sisters. Now, this is not meant to discourage you, and I want to emphasize this. Immediately you think, oh, great, I have to measure myself against Jesus Christ. I might as well give up now. No, no, that's not it. Sure, you are leagues away from being like the Lord, but the Scripture promises you that you are predestined to be like Jesus that you are daily being changed from glory to glory, that he who began this work in you will most certainly complete it, and that one day you will awake in his righteousness. And so it's not a matter of being discouraged at how far short you fall, but of being encouraged. You will absolutely be like the Lord one day, and in the meantime, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help conform you into His image. And so you are to look at the example of Jesus and then examine yourself and be encouraged that this is the plan and work of God in your life to make you more like Jesus, and He has promised that He will do it and bring it to pass. Therefore, you should see spiritual fruit in your life. Verse 43, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth, good, uh, brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Fruit is true to the character of the tree or vine. Figs come only from fig trees. Grapes come from grapevines. Good, healthy, well-tended trees and vines will produce much fruit. The point seems to be this. Before you are saved... You can only produce works that are consistent with your sin nature. Jesus says your nature is bad. He compares it to a thorn or a bramble. After you are saved, you're able to bring forth spiritual fruit. Is there fruit in your life? Is it good fruit? Again, Jesus isn't trying to discourage you. Quite the opposite. He's reminding you of the radical changes that occurred when you received Him as your Lord and Savior. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you were a hell-doomed sinner? And you might have even been trying to be religious, but it just wasn't working. And then you heard the gospel in a way that really came home to your heart, and you were born again. A tremendous change occurred in your life. Without really studying the Bible, without a program of any kind, without knowing anything except that you had given your life to Jesus Christ, many of you have the testimony that you, you no longer drank. You were drunks, but you no longer drank. You were dope fiends, and you, you didn't have any desire for your weed or anything anymore. You hated other people. Now you love them. Some of you didn't know how to talk anymore because God cleaned up your language so profoundly. 
and you, and you sit there and you're a brand new Christian, we call it now a baby Christian, you didn't do anything. You received the Lord. You, you, you didn't know what you were supposed to do, but you were changed. Your nature was new. You were born again. Your spirit had come alive. The Holy Spirit was within you. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you know, you, you're going to bring forth fruit that is consistent with your new nature as a disciple. Now, unfortunately, after we've walked with the Lord for a long time, we allow things to get a lot more complicated than when we were first saved. Uh, it's, it's almost like, you know, my children, when they were growing up, uh, you know, we didn't bring them in on all of the real stresses of our life, you know. Mary, Jean, I'm not sure if we're going to make the rent this month, so, you know, that... Uh, bottle money that you got, we could really use that, you know. So, if you come home this evening and we're not here, uh, we'll try and leave you a note. So, have fun at school today in kindergarten, you know. I mean, and you know, kids, they just don't, they don't have that kind of, it's like, this is my mom and dad and this is our house and, and there's going to be food tomorrow and everything's going to be fine. And, and that's what we're like when we're first born again. It's like, oh, my father's in heaven. Oh, my car was in a wreck. Praise the Lord. My house is on fire. Cool. You know, everything is just, it's up to the Lord. And then you, you, you learn more about the Lord, and that's good, but somewhere along the way, we begin to let these things back into our lives, and we're like, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay the rent? What's happening in my life? And so the Lord says, now, if you're bringing forth fruit, and it's been hanging a little bit too much on the vine, and it's starting to shrivel, that's okay, too, because I'll come in, and I'll start to cultivate and prune you and cut that away, I'm still going to work with you. And so, again, don't be discouraged if you're thinking, oh, man, you know, what a bummer. I don't have that much fruit. Well, God's a good husbandman, and he's probably working in your life to bring forth more fruit. Uh, I'm not really good at pruning trees. I just, I remember the first tree I ever pruned, uh, I can still see it. It was a lemon tree in San Bernardino. It was just out of control lemon tree, and I got some pruning shears. Snip, snip. Before I was done, well, all that was left was the trunk. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, literally, I stood back and I thought, oh, I should have left a few branches on there. It was just a trunk. It was insane. Still, it sprouted from the trunk, and, and we had tremendous crops of lemons after that, you know? And so some of you need a radical pruning. Or some cultivating, some manure around your life. You're wondering what's, <laughs> wondering what's going on in your life. You're being manured. And so, I'll leave that one alone at this point. And so, none of this is discouraging. I mean, you're sitting there thinking, oh, first of all, I've got to compare myself to Jesus. Now, I've got to look and see if there's fruit in my life. I'm a loser. No. No, because it's Jesus who's saying to you, this is the life of a disciple, and, and I'm going to do these things in your life. Just cooperate. Listen, the life of a disciple is tough, but no matter how tough, you can be encouraged that you are becoming more like your Lord. And that's why in the book of Acts, when the apostles and disciples were imprisoned and beaten or martyred, they rejoiced. They counted it worthy to be treated just like Jesus. It was like, wow, these guys are beating us up just like they did Jesus. They see something in our life that is like the Lord. All they cared about was being more like Jesus Christ. 
You're going to have many negative encounters, but you can expect much in the way of positive encouragement. The last four verses tie it all together. You are encouraged because you are building for Jesus. Jesus had just preached a sermon to his disciples. This was his conclusion, and like any good conclusion, short and to the point. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In our country, here in our cities and counties, there are building codes. They sometimes seem extreme, extraneous, and unnecessary until the flood or the earthquake or the tornado or the hurricane hits, and then you're thankful that you retrofitted your house. In first century Israel, there were no such building codes that I could find. Uh, It's kind of like the third world countries where you can visit these outlying areas, and even if there are building codes, there's no inspectors. And I mean, I've been in some houses in Honduras and in the Philippines and places like that that aren't, well, they're not houses, they're, they're cardboard boxes that people live in with uh, tin roofs. And, and there's, you know, they don't take you and say, now I, I built this up to code, this is corrugated, uh, you know, paper. Uh, I'm not using just the plain box, you know, this is the corrugate. I mean, it's just whatever people can throw together as a shelter. And so, knowing the flood would surely come there in Israel, you'd better dig deep and lay a strong foundation. If you did, your house would survive. If you didn't, the ruin of your house would be great. Now, remember the overall context. Jesus is telling His disciples they could expect to suffer much in the way of persecution. In these verses, He's likening persecution to a flash flood coming through your life. It was coming. It continues throughout history. It gets worse in the great tribulation for those who are left on the earth. You should be building according to code. You don't have to. No one is forcing you. But when trials and troubles come, if you are not building your life on Jesus according to the code as you understand it in Scripture, you're going to experience ruin. Floods are going to come through your life, and they are going to cause ruin and destruction. I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation, that you're not a Christian. But I am saying that it's possible for us as Christians to ignore Jesus as our foundation in certain areas of our life, or, well, sometimes the things we read in God's Word, they seem extreme and even unnecessary to us, just the way some building codes do. You know, when I was at Calvary San Bernardino, we had a building project, and uh, man, the, the, the inspectors, the city was so by the book and tough on us. We didn't mind because, you know, we didn't, that's just the way it was. But I finally asked one of the head inspectors, I said, hey, what's the deal? I mean, I know that you guys can bend the rules if, if you need to. And we were doing a remodel of an existing building, and it, it got really, really weird. I mean, stuff that we didn't think we were going to have to do. And we had to cut a 100-foot trench through the slab of this building to get a drinking fountain in the hallway. And it, I, I don't know how many saw blades we went through 
It was insane. And we thought, how about we just put bottled water back there? No, sorry. It's in the code. And so finally I asked, and he said, look, he goes, we're sorry to have to do this, but churches are the worst. What are you talking about? He goes, churches always have Uncle Joe come down and do their electrical for them. And Uncle Joe runs out of Romex, and he just gets a piece of extension cord, and he, this will work. I used to do this in the, you know, in the military and stuff. And, and, and you know, and then the, then the fire comes, and people are dead and charred, and oh, we're going to sue the city. Where's the inspector when you need him and stuff? And so we're just not going to do that anymore. We don't want to end up in City Hall, you know, or at the city council meeting arguing with churches about what they can or can't do. And I said, I had to respect that. And so, but in our lives, this is the application. Sometimes in our lives, we're reading God's Word, and there's something that seems extreme to us, maybe like in the category of the Jesus freak. You know, I don't want to get that extreme. I want to have a little area of compromise here. What can it hurt? And Jesus is saying, well, you don't know what's coming. And so why don't you build according to code so when the flood comes through your life, you're actually ready for it. It's still going to be a flood, but you're going to survive it. It's not going to cause the ruin of your family. And it's, it's a good advice. It's good advice. You know, the other thing that I would say here, it's encouraging to know that by following the Lord, you are building something that will last for all eternity. It may not seem like much, the building of your life. I mean, when you leave here today and you think, well, let me, let me consider the building that is my life. What am I really doing for the Lord? Uh, gosh, I'm not even out in Hungary on the mission field. You know, what am I doing? I get up in the morning, I go to work, I'm raising some children, I go to church, I serve in my church. You know, your life can seem like it's a, it's a nothing and you can get pretty discouraged about it. You know what? All you need to do is be faithful to what God has called you to do and to know that that's true. And then what you're doing for the Lord in His name, on His foundation, that building that you're doing, however slight you think it is, it is a greater structure than the greatest structure anyone has ever built that has nothing to do with the Lord. So if you look out into the world and whether it's, you know, whether it's literal buildings that tower into the sky or, or corporations that people have put together or whatever it might be that seems like I built this with my own two hands, I'm a self-made man. If it's not for the Lord, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's something that anyone could do if, in a sense at the right place and the right time, who was willing to sacrifice everything else in their life and dedicate themselves to this one ridiculous purpose of having the world's tallest building. Man, is that thing going to fall when the Lord returns compared to just an average Joe Christian? That's what they should have on television, Joe Christian. <laughs> just the average Christian who is seeking the Lord in the morning in devotions and representing the Lord every day at the place of work or at school or in the home, raising a family as unto the Lord, supporting their local church, those kinds of things, that is a structure that the Lord inhabits and will reward you for for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these simple but profound truths about discipleship. And Lord, we just pray that We'd be encouraged this morning 
Certainly, Lord, there's a sense of looking at you and seeing how immensely far short we fall and always will this side of eternity. But that's not why you said this, Lord. You're not motivating us that way. You're encouraging us that you who began a good work in us will complete it, that you are changing us from glory to glory. We are predestined, Lord, to be conformed into your image. One day we shall awake in your righteousness. Lord, that gives me hope that every day I can take maybe baby steps, but steps nonetheless towards that goal, to examine myself against that standard and to be giving and forgiving to others around me so that I might more represent your nature and your character. Do these things and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand. We're going to dismiss, and as we do, some of our deacons will be down front. As Gene starts to sing, you're welcome to come on down and pray with these guys. Certainly after the service, they'll wait around as long as necessary. God bless and keep you this week as you seek to know Him in a more perfect way. Amen.
Lord Jesus. 